Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to the second session of the Emerging Ontology Showcase. The uh, this, this showcase series was introduced because of the large number of ontologies that are becoming uh, available, and we wanted to have a venue where uh, individuals could present ontologies that have recently been released, and uh, in that way people will uh, be able to interact with the developers. And uh, today we actually have two very interesting uh, speakers who will be speaking about uh, topics that, uh, well, in some ways seem really different from one another, but I imagine there will be some things in common. Um, Sven van Fuka from uh, Belgium, who is a medical doctor, is going to be speaking about a rather substantial collaborative effort, collaborative effort uh, to develop an ontology base for wounds. You'll um, be talking about the various uh, expert groups for images, diagnostics, and models and ontologies, and uh, how all these different worlds can be uh, combined in this in an ontological framework. And our second speaker will be Professor Martin Hepp from Bundeswehr University in Munich, and he'll be speaking about the Good Relations Ontology, um, an important ontology for e-business. So let's begin then with Dr. Sven Van Puka speaking on the wound ontology, different worlds on the same planet. Sven? Okay. Good evening, everyone. And, well, good evening here from Belgium, and thank you uh, for Peter, Ken, and Mike, uh, being uh, invited to have uh, a small discussion on a topic that, in our opinion, is very interesting but also very frustrating because, um, and I had already several discussions or communication with Peter on that because uh, ontologies or ontologists and domain experts in this case uh, on chronic wounds really are living on a, perhaps on a different planet, but let's see if this is still true. So let's uh, go to the first slide, and then we go to the second one. Why have we started this um, consortium, and why have we <clears throat> started this research um, um, project, in fact? Because chronic wounds, about one out of uh, 100 per, uh, persons is suffering from chronic wounds. So the prevalence and cost of managing those wounds continue to escalate. And, and although there are very advanced uh, wound care pro products and new products arriving every day, in fact, um, there are a lot of specialists and, and, and wound care centers or clinics and consultants. The cost uh, emotionally but also financially is increasing dramatically. So the morbidity and financial cost is growing and is becoming uh, for a society an important problem. Although um, um, we are all aware of that uh, from the medical community, there's also an increased um, uh, demand, in fact, uh, from healthcare providers, payers, and policymakers to review the way we are managing uh, those wounds. Not um, 
entirely the medical way we are reviewing it, but also how we are going to deal with the data on the on these wounds and how can we uh, quantify uh, these types of wounds. So um, I would like to tell everybody that we are going to see some images that are not very tasty, like we like we uh, tell it or call it. But chronic wounds, like the image you see over there, um, well, there are three main principal types of chronic wounds. The, the usual leg ulcer is an ulcer, like it, it calls alcus cruris, is an ulcer that uh, is developing itself because your venous blood flow, the blood flow to your heart is in, insufficient. Your, the blood vessels responsible for that is in, insufficient. There are a lot of causes for that. I'm not going to give you some lecture in medicine. But another type of wound, uh, very important, about 10% of people um, in a hospital do suffer from pressure ulcers. So the, the, the ulcer that is developing itself because people um, are not healthy and are laying in a bed or on a wheelchair and tissue is breaking down or is going to break down. Most of those patients do really have other diseases like in diabetic foot ulcers vascular problems, uh, uh, neuropathic problems, all these pro problems together generate tissue breakdown. It's not a cheap problem. It's not a problem that we can look over. If you look for the United States, about 20 million to 25 million billion dollars a year is costing these, this problem uh, to the society. May I ask what slide you, are we on? Sorry? What slide number are we on? Oh, oh sorry. The, um, well, now we are on four. Slide number four. Thank you. A, a few concepts could be, or well, I know concepts. We are, we have to be very uh, careful to use the word concept. But a few um, um, mechanisms and, and ways we, we from the clinical community are looking to wounds are um, necessary, I think, to present. First, um, wound bed preparation is a way of treating wounds. The wound you are looking on slide four is a pressure ulcer, and uh, it's the result from a breakdown, from breakdown between bones towards uh, the, uh, the, uh, the towards outside because of pressure, pressure too high in time in a time frame period. To treat these ulcers, you need to. Um, change the wounds from a chronic situation to an acute situation. We all know uh, from our survival um, instinct that we have a lot of mechanisms in our body uh, able to uh, repair our tissues when they have been broken down. Although some, in, in some situations, these uh, mechanisms uh, are reduced because of diabetes, because of uh, other uh, comorbidities. So the preparation of the wound bed, which is the part where the tissue has been broken down um, in, a, in a right way, current state, uh, current um, state of the art is essential. Most clinicians have tried to quantify wounds by reducing them um, um, and, and giving some parts of those wounds, uh, mainly the wound bed, uh, um, relating to a color because a color could, well, that's in fact the theory, uh, could perhaps be associated uh, with uh, a face of the wounds. A red wound bed is related to granulation, and granulation is good because it's tissue repair. A yellow wound bed or parts that are yellow is related with fibrin, and fibrin is 
tissue breakdown. So it's not positive. And black is mostly related with necrosis. And necrosis is something we do not like because bacteria like to grow in in necrotic parts and we need um, um, to um, uh, cut those um, 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 regions out or use dressings that can remove those regions. Okay, because um, color analysis on wounds or on tissue is a very complex problem, um, this was the first uh, um, issue we needed to attack. We are going to slide five. When we look at this nice lady, um, well, in fact, the the image you can see is is a a part of reality. Although a lot of technology is existing on managing data related to healthcare problems, in reality, and not it's not true for all uh, disciplines in medicine, but for most of them, a lot of um, data has been um, or is written down and is lost, in fact, because nobody is able to retrieve any data afterwards. Uh, Well, you can retrieve it, but it needs a lot of investment. So before um, studying wounds and studying uh, how we could quantify wounds, um, I have been looking on ways to to optimize the data flow uh, related to wounds, and of course not only the wounds, but also the patients um, behind the wounds. So... Um, there's a huge pressure from the community and from from econ- economical uh, point of view uh, to randomize clinical trials because trying to sell some dressing or trying to sell some drugs um, could be very easy. People are very desperate and are looking for a solution, um, but it's impossible to uh, continue and to to continue to finance uh, by third part payers uh, these new uh, drug development. So. Um, the, the third part, third parties or third person parties are requesting randomized clinical trials. Uh, in relation to that also, um, and regarding to, to technology, health technology assessment is requested. So there's a, because of the huge increase on, on economical press, pressure on health budget, some things are changing. We need to, to uh, optimize our way of uh, activity. And I know that for uh, communities um, rela- more related to industry and to, to, to making a, uh, to pr- the production of cars or, or something else, this seems very logic. But in a community um, where physicians uh, um, and nurses and patients um, uh, work and live and suffer, um, this is something different. We c- cannot compare a car with a patient. So a lot of um, mechanisms and parts of our way of thinking need to be changed and, 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 and need to be inter- uh, needs another type of interpretation. So um, the key re- requirement of, the optima- of optimal data sharing is, of course, and that's what we all know, some standardization. And that's where we were looking for. So to try to solve this problem, we, and now we're going to slide number six, uh, well, first I can, I can um, stress the reasons or a few reasons why wound measurement and assessment and um, um, uh, quantitative assessment is necessary. Well, it's of course, it's necessary to track the, your, the progress of the patient of the disease, but also to uh, 
to to be able to to have some audits on on this progress and on the effectiveness of the institution uh, you're working in or you're paying for. It's also necessary to study the outcome, of course, to 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 start uh, randomized clinical trials. Also, uh, it's an, it's necessary because of um, the ability to um, to test or to quantify the compliance of the patients uh, to the treatment you induced or you started. And of course, because of an economical point of view, um, when reimbursement is uh, involved. So we arrived at the point where we um, where we considered where we where we saw, in fact, that something was missing. We needed um, the efficiency and the efficacy um, that was was available in um, other parts of the industry that we tried to translate. Uh, on this uh, data flow related with a chronic um, healthcare situation. So the question we were asking ourselves were which colorimetrics or color-related and uh, geometrical parameters um, could be used to analyze this tissue repair in a time frame, um, not only macroscopic but also using um, ultrastructural um, analysis, and this is, of course, um, um, well, how modern um, uh, research is done. Are there biomarkers available to demonstrate um, this repair or even could be used as a prognostic uh, tool? We were not alone with this question. And, of course, I was not sitting alone on my desk uh, asking myself. I have tried to speak with a lot of parties uh, to um, promote uh, our questions, and um, up to now, uh, we have a lot of parties, and you also see SIM and, and some universities and companies that are interested in, uh, in the same way we uh, have started this uh, consortium. So, <clears throat> this is slide nine. This is now, yes, we are now already to, at slide number 10, excuse me. So, <clears throat> to conclude this uh, part, chronic wound care, how is it related with this semantic problem? Well, treatment decisions are based mainly on, not entirely, but mainly on visual perception, and vis visual perception is always subjective. We need to describe um, these wounds, they need to be analyzed, but it's poorly standardized and it's rarely reprodu reproducible. If I look um, at the uh, current clinical care when communication is done on chronic wounds, it's reduced to, okay, the wound is going better, or, oh, the patient is suffering from a little bit more pain than yesterday. And you can imagine when uh, different um, teams are working or are dealing with patients, uh, it's becoming very, very difficult to communicate on rather complex problems that are always uh, the result of a final common pathway uh, as a result of a chronic disease. So assessing and measuring temporal changes um, is very difficult. And, and the, fir the first step, uh, in our opinion, and that's uh, completely um, due to the activities of uh, Professor Ivan der Hagen, who is also listening right now, um, he's done his PhD sub, uh, topic on that or research on that. The first step was to calibrate uh, images on their color com content so, so we were able to reproduce the color content. 
to reproduce this color content was necessary because wounds are not imaged uh, just in one office with one type of illumination. No, they are imaged, imaged today on intensive care and tomorrow in your in your office and a few weeks further on uh, at the uh, at uh, the home of the patient by uh, healthcare delivered at home. So we need we needed to have some uh, protocol. Um, or algorithm to um, have our image um, uh, prepared for interpretation uh, that is independently of any camera settings or illumination. Okay, so the, when this, um, well, uh, rather complex um, step was uh, performed and was, uh, research, was, uh, um, um, was done, in fact, was finished, next step was how are we going to communicate on the data we could capture by digital uh, uh, images. And, there, and, and that, in fact, was for myself the trigger to become interested in ontologies and in, in ways of communicating on difficult to describe, um, to describe uh, scenes, in fact, if I, if I can call a wound uh, a scene. So we, let's try slide number 11. So the Wound Ontology Consortium was... Um, this was started, in fact, as a community of practice, and it is semi-open. I don't know Peter likes the word open and not semi-open, um, but the semi-part semi, uh, is because we are working with medical images, and we would not like that everybody is looking at these images or could upload or download these images. So people are screened as, well, if that is possible, of course, completely, um, for their um, well, for their credentials in healthcare and their relation to wound care or to imaging analysis, it's international. We we are working or we try to work with several groups, um, and we are we are interested in non-invasive because a lot of invasive technologies already are already existing, but are very difficult and not practical in day-to-day um, -day, on date on a day-to-day -day basis in uh, wound care. So non-invasive wound assessment by image analysis and the reduction of the prices for uh, for a cell phone um, uh, digital image tool or, 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 or a camera is, of course, the, the principal attraction um, to have digital images used in clinical care. So we are interested in image analysis, ontology, and the interpretation and, uh, and knowledge extraction because we think that with the actual um, way we describe wounds, not only, of course, human, as the, which you can see at the left, but also <clears throat> we're also doing some research on, um, on animals. The way we are describing wounds uh, today is, is really uh, on the level of medieval times. It's very, well, uh, very basic and not uniform, and not defined, even a wound is not defined, uh, a chronic wound is not defined. So we are really at the start. And <clears throat> the image you can see in the middle is in fact a projection of pixels in a color space. Um, and although they try to, well, the, the medical community is trying to promote um, three colors, yellow, red, and black, which we saw a few moments ago, when we are, when we are projecting those three uh, regions in one color cloud, you can see there is a, a, a huge overlap, and it's impossible to cut 
just by looking at colors, it's impossible to cut a wound in three types of colors. So this is a difficult problem we need to face and we need to find some solutions for. Okay, <clears throat> so the next step was how are, are we going to deal with these problems? Therefore, we started um, to work uh, or to develop three, uh, four working groups. The first one uh, was, of course, necessary. Uh, that's the, the working group uh, mainly dealing with the image base and the, the security and the way we, are, we could, using the Internet or over the Internet, we could calibrate and measure uh, these wounds. <clears throat> the second uh, working group uh, are, in fact, the clinicians, people, um, with expertise um, of, um, in, of uh, interpretate, interpretate uh, of, of the diagnostic related uh, to the wounds, so describing wounds from a clinical point of view. And in contrast with this group, and I thought this was very interesting because it could it, it could also be translated on radiology or other or dermatology, other parts in um, in healthcare, are people. Um, and this is the, the third group are people with expertise on uh, mathematical analysis, on text, texture and shape and color, because, we, of course, we can describe uh, in a wound, this is fibrin, but what is fibrin? How, how is it mathematically um, presented in this image? What is the texture? Why are we calling this fibrin? Of course, we know it's fibrin because when we... When we do some chemical analysis on it, we know this is fibrin or this is necrosis or this is granulation. But <clears throat> what is the pattern, what is the shape and texture of the annotations the uh, medical experts are producing? This is something we uh, are interested in. And the, the first three groups are, are of course, the, um, well, the nutrition of the last group. And the last group is the most difficult, in my opinion, is how can we then communicate on wounds be, uh, well using an ontology or developing an ontology related to the to image or end imaging and in relation with the existing ontologies like uh, the uh, fma and and um, <clears throat> ontologies related to uh, medic medical analysis and diagnostical uh, tools next slide so slide number 13 so in our um, well, in our consortium, a digital image is considered as an instrument, semantic instrument for capturing some aspects of the real world. And this is, uh, of course, um, Barry Smith you're, uh, you're hearing. Um, a lot of new technologies are necessary to optimize the way we describe wounds. I've told it already. So the description and the descriptive data on images, what we uh, see is that like radiologists who are already already uh, several hundred years uh, experts in in in, in in the interpretation of images, <clears throat> well, what we see is that it's necessary to um, to have a good and and a complete uh, descript description of images because we see that um, clinicians think they have uh, they they are speaking the same language and they think they're using the same words, but it's in in reality it's not the case. So um, this is, in fact, a huge gap in, in our expertise and in our profession. The next slide. So the first working group, slide number 14, uh, was interested in the deployment of a searchable repository. 
and an ability to up and download uh, images um, which could be calibrated uh, manually. So by um, showing, in fact, um, or, yeah, by showing the algorithm where the calibration card was positioned and, and, and which colors were which. Um, but Yves van der Haaren has already um, developed also an automatic uh, approach where the, the calibration card, uh, the chart is uh, found uh, automatically. So <clears throat> this um, wound image base, base is uh, located at another website, Calibrate.com, which is calibration and color together. Um, and it seems very identical, in fact, the two images, but the left one is not calibrated, the right one is. What's the difference? Well, the left image um, it's impossible to compare with anything else, even with an image taken two seconds further on, uh, which, well, which might be interest, uh, inter, uh, which might be considered the same image. Um, the right image, so after calibration, after um, 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 walking through the algorithm, um, this image can be compared. The color content is universal. It's 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 like using a candle in a restaurant to be able to um, compare uh, the color of the wine you're drinking. So this working group, um, um, well, was interested in digital images and in calibration. And like I told already before, um, the uh, target was to have some, to, well, to, to change your images in a way that they, that they became independently of any camera settings and um, elimination of the environment. Which uh, calibration charts are we using? Initially, we uh, used the Macbeth color checker chart, the small one at the left side. Um, but because of the price, we were looking for another one, and uh, we, use, we are using right now also the QP card, which is coming from Scandinavia. Um, and an image in our setting is... Um, considered as three-dimensional, two-dimensional in space, and one in time. Okay, next, next slide, number 18. This image is an image uh, just taken out of reality um, from a pressure ulcer. A pressure, pressure ulcer that has already been under some surgery. And the question is, and this is also the, the, the link between, the, uh, between this image base uh, group and the, um, well, the, the clinical expert group also. What is a wound and when is a wound chronic and where is the end of a wound bed? If you look at the, um, well, at about 12 or 1 o'clock of this wound, you can see uh, thick well, thick part, which is the skin and, the, the, and, the, and the, the, the tissue just under the skin, but where is the wound that ending? Is everybody, is there 100% uh, agreement where the wound that is ending? And what is the wound edge? Uh, can we define a wound edge, edge uh, mathematically? A wound border, so the tissue around a wound is, is very important also because when this tissue is becoming more red, for instance, we, we are, uh, well, we are scared there, there might be some infection or there might be some increased inflammation. So <clears throat> a lot of questions that up to today were not uh, answered. The next slide. So the clinical experts um, are 
uh, well, are playing uh, with some tools uh, that are available right now um, also on our um, image base and are related to uh, colorimetric analysis of wounds. So are we able to relate what we measure to what we describe in clinical practice, but also tools um, related to defining the, the end of the wound bed um, where we use some segmentation algorithms like LifeWire and other parts. This, uh, well, this research is in fact uh, a way to validate um, the tools we are providing right now to the clinical community. Next slide. Um, well, we can skip slide number 20. This is um, some part of uh, the animal uh, research. Okay, let's go to, the, um, to some description of the third uh, working group. Well, this working group, to, uh, to remember, is working on um, the mathematical analysis of what we see and what the clinicians have described. So how is, are the annotations described? So on the one hand, we see in the literature a lot of mathematical models to um, well to try to um, to try to to analyze um, how tissue is repairing, what are the 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 ways the tissue is repairing in vivo, but also um, um, in, in animals or more even more basic research. And on the other hand, you see a lot of algorithms to analyze colorimetric pat uh, patterns and textures and, sh and shapes, and we tried to, to combine these two parts. We are not yet there. Of course, there's only one, one goal in mind, disambiguation facing during interpretation, which is a huge problem. And we were lucky um, because um, the, our satellite imaging has helped us a lot with a lot of um, um, algorithms uh, which we could use uh, to define some patterns or regions in a wound bed, and those um, algorithms are used, uh, for instance, to define this is a, uh, a this is a wood or, or or this is a Greenland or something. These patterns are already or this, these algorithms are already existing. So, in fact, we try to extract color, texture, shape from region of interest. Um, that have been an annotated by clinical experts. Okay, let's go to the next slide, 22. Okay, where can we then, for the last group, uh, position our ontology? I already told you that the ontology we are developing is mainly based and positioned between our and, and the already existing ontologies. Um, the ontologies, uh, the ontology we develop is, of course, is a domain ontology in our opinion, um, and the domain is, of course, related to wound and wound image and wound imaging, um, and it's uh, related or it's in support of science, not just for administrative uh, reasons. Okay. Then, um, because I'm a physician, of course, and ontology was something I uh, only knew from philosophy, and still when I'm communicating with my colleagues on, the, on this research project, they really think I'm on drugs. <laughs> um, but um, the ontology um, well, community is uh, developed already, of course, uh, much further and in a very complex way, in our opinion, and therefore, I uh, thought that while well, I sought contact with P 
Peter and his uh, company, but also with uh, the BMRIR. Um, so we were able to um, use a COTS server, so the, the uh, collective ontology development server of Peter and uh, Timothy, which is available right now or where people are able to um, see the start of this ontology and to um, connect to the server and, and uh, relate the, their knowledge on the ontology to what already has been produced. Okay, there's a repository which can be um, uh, viewed and more in a more advanced way also be uh, edited. The ontology we have is related, uh, like I told already, to what is existing uh, um, in the ontology world, um, and we all know continuant and occurrent and process, and all these things are integrated and are adapted to the arena of chronic wounds. We, now let's go to slide 27. Um, it was, in fact, Peter, uh, Peter Yim who advised me to uh, use a license for the license uh, adapted to the open communities, and therefore we uh, decided to use a Creative Commons uh, licensing, and we, um, um, well, we, we uh, settled or we, we installed, in fact, a license on our website and on our activities. Slide number 28. Well, the question of my uh, talk was, are we, are we living in different worlds? And I really think we are living in different worlds. It's, it's demanding a huge uh, time and, 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 well, mainly time to try to understand the way ontologists, ontologists are thinking on reality, how they are using their ontology um, as a tool to compare things in the, in the real world. So on the other hand, I see it's almost impossible for ontologists to understand the way chronic wounds are, in, are, are analyzed and chronic, ways, uh, chronic wounds are described. So the, the uh, amount of energy necessary, and let's, let us go to slide number 29, the amount of, of time necessary to understand each other is enormous and it's, it's difficult, it's almost impossible. I considered uh, when I finished the slides that it took, it took me one lifetime to become an ontologist, perhaps, and it will take, well, it will, will take me one lifetime to become an ontologist. It took me one lifetime to become a wound care specialist. How will I, how will I look the moment I can manage both? And perhaps it will be like the people, the, the, the guy in, in, uh, at the right side. Or, and this is my question, in fact, is this community able to reduce the gap between those two worlds? Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Sven. That was very interesting. Um, we actually have time now to deal with some questions. Um, we already have some questions on the chat board uh, from Robbie. And I suppose we could we could address those since they're very specific to a few of your slides. Uh, Ravi, are you? Yes, I'm available. Can you okay. hear me? So would you... Is my voice, voice available to everybody? Yeah, yes. yeah, we can hear you. Yeah. Okay, thank you. So go ahead. Um, 
I have essentially one, uh, two central points through these questions, and I'll be happy to, I mean, there must be a mechanism where Peter can probably forward it to Dr. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce your name, Dr. Pauk. Is that the right way to pronounce, Dr. Pauk? Pampuker. Doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, so, um, Doctor, as I will address you, uh, there are two things. One is, um, obviously, standardization of images. Let's say we have minimum variation. Same patient, we want to measure the healing rate. Mm-hmm. But we need to standardize from one day to ten days later the same illuminator, same receiving sensor of the image, whether it's scan or a camera, and we need to reproduce the external conditions exactly as well as we can. And so this has been done in several things, including remote sensing, also into the contrast-based imaging in medical field, etc. So we do Mm -hmm. the best we can to zero in through those experts and those ontologies on image standardization. Mm -hmm. Second is that we need to group these data on standardized images for differencing or for comparing other people's wounds with this wound, and then put in all the clinical and other test features co-located with this data set. We have done such a similar exercise for remotely sensed images in earth earth sciences, where Mm -hmm. uh, oceans, uh, land, uh, and other surfaces we have data set similarity comparison. One of the standards that has been used is called HDF EOS or HDF5, which the Supercomputing Center at uh, Urbana-Champaign has helped develop, NCSA as it is called. So if you would kindly take my comments uh, in whatever is relevant to the wound technology, I think we can make significantly more progress if we combine the existing expertise and create such co-collective or integrated data sets. Totally. Well, I think as I, I saw your activities um, before, and a few a few weeks ago, I sent you an email on it. But of course, everybody is receiving that much emails. But perhaps um, Professor Yves van der Hagen is able to uh, give a more, um, well, more complete answer on that. I'm trying to read through the comments from the chat board here, um, uh, Ravi. Um, um, but I, I'm, I'm trying to deduce what, what the, um, the exact question is. Uh, I know that uh, in other fields of science, uh, some of the color problems have been solved and, and uh, spectral imaging and, and stuff like that. Uh, have been around for quite a while, but those are, of course, more complex setups, and we needed something much simpler and and maybe less precise, and but uh, less cumbersome, and that could be handled by uh, non-specialized personnel. So this is why we solved it as simply with those color cards. I don't know if this uh, answers yes, the sir. question. The the point is, if we have at least a few test sites where we have standard instruments and do goniometry completely, namely 
you know, the spectral correctness and the illumination correctness. Okay, and the yeah, okay, I see. No, I, I, I yeah. think that might be going a bridge too far for our purposes. We are, we would be going way too much too far uh, with the current understanding of images uh, and the current uh, advances we have in uh, an analysis of wounds uh, to go that far, although ultimately that ma might be the the, the, be the best solution. Uh, yes, uh, the at least a few standard data sets would help you converge in concepts and understand the healing rates for standard test cases at least. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, might be. Because the field variability will be very, very large. Somebody will use this kind of camera. Somebody will use that type of sensor. Oh, but this is solved. No, 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 no. The, the color. Te oh, okay. Now I get the question. No, this is solved. Uh, this is more or less solved. I mean, even if you have metamerism, which is technically, uh, if, if uh, different spectral distributions for light and camera sensitivity are, are used, we are more or less able to uh, con uh, to compensate for that. And this has all been measured and evaluated, and the results are, for the moment at least, satisfying enough to continue with further analysis and move on to uh, shape, texture, and color analysis, and then move on to ontologies, for the moment oh, at least. Okay, okay, we've, okay we've reached the uh, end of the allocated time for this uh, first presentation, so I would ask that any other questions... Uh, any other individuals that wish to ask questions, will, would you please wait until the general discussion session that will come after the uh, second presentation. So I'd like to move now to uh, the presentation by Martin Hepp, who's a uh, professor at the Bundeswehr University in Munich. Uh, he has a Ph.D. from the University of Würzburg. And he is currently the chair of the e-business and web science research group. And uh, Professor Hepp will now speak on the good relations ontology. Professor Hepp? Yep. Hello. This is Martin Hepp. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. We can hear you. Okay. That's great. So, um, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to discuss um, the good relations um, work with you. Um, it's actually um, a small um, an effort carried out by a rather small community, but over a sustained amount of time. The so first uh, work started back in uh, 2003. So I'm now on slide one, uh, and we move on to slide two. Um, the basic purpose of the uh, Good Relations Ontology is to overcome a very disadvantages, the effect of the web on e-commerce, um, because if we look at the web, how it is, we're now on slide uh, two, as it, as it currently is, then it may be the biggest uh, friction in uh, automated data interchange between business entities, because if you look on the left side, you see most enterprises having structured data representations for both the products and services they purchase and the products and services they are offering. Now, um, almost all enterprises quite clearly maintain some kind of web um, 
presence and publish their offering data, descriptions of the products and services they are offering in terms and conditions on the web. And other enterprises are using that data to do price comparison, to um, set up integrated purchasing processes, and the like. Now, despite the fact that all this is happening on computers, if you, uh, you, see, see, um, uh, if you look at the bottom of that slide, um, the web in between requires that um, at the inbound side of data processing, a lot of human labor has to be invested. So actually, people spend a lot of time um, fetching product feature details from web pages, entering them into ERP systems, and the like. Now, we're advancing to slide two, uh, three. Um, quite clearly, this is unsatisfying, um, and well, the idea of the semantic web understood as a web of data um, would fit very nicely in that scenario in the sense that corporations could publish their product descriptions and offering data in a way that allows um, uh, harvesting and automated processing um, by uh, uh, enterprises purchasing the items. And my two slides, two and three, are also a little bit simplistic because they are... Um, uh, they are showing just a pair of enterprises, but in fact, um, most enterprises are members in multiple value chains. So the traditional approach of agreeing upon one standard of representation as uh, in traditional deep B2B scenarios, that is an unrealistic option um, if it comes to uh, uh, only spontaneous business relations. So. Again, it's a very unsatisfying situation that you have data already in a highly structured form, mostly in ERP systems or um, product data management systems, and you publish things on the web, and in the end, your customers fetch data from those uh, documents and use a lot of human labor um, to, uh, to extract um, and process uh, product features, offering data, and the like. Now we advance to slide four, please. Well, it comes as no surprise that this has uh, been identified as a potential application of semantic web um, technology and ontologies uh, pretty early. There are more than 100 papers um, dating back until the uh, year 2001 describing um, that the semantic web would be a great improvement for this scenario and uh, alike. Surprisingly, no one has tried to materialize that promise to build the respective ontologies, um, yeah, despite the fact that such scenarios have been used for quite a long time to motivate the need for semantic web technology. Now we're advancing to slide number five. Um, just to illustrate potential use cases, I mean, assume that there are mainly three branches of uh, scenarios of activities where um, uh, a better um, ability to process product offering data by machines um, would be very helpful. I mean, one large uh, share of those tasks relates to commodity offers, so stationary office supplies, um, bolts and nuts, uh, and, and the like. Then services offers. By the way, I'm not talking of web services in here. I'm talking about um, really real business services, 
also in the private sector, like getting your hair cut, uh, getting your car serviced, um, getting your uh, roof renewed and stuff like that. And the third use case is exchanging product model data. So, for example, if Sony Ericsson or Nokia publishes specifications of their new cell phone model, uh, models on their web pages, and web shops offering those uh, cell phone models um, to end users could simply harvest all the specifications from the manufacturer's web pages. On the right side, you see um, typical example of the web shop for outdoor gear. And now the exact um, meaning of, of these uh, of web shops offering certain um, items deserves some analysis. Um, because most of those web pages um, tangle uh, a variety of statements. So the web shop shown in here, for example, basically says that they are selling some sleeping bags. So if you're in need of a sleeping bag, this would be a web page to visit. Also, they are selling explicitly that they sell some unidentified instances of the Marmot sleeping bag model 1234, or however you call it. The third um, may be that they sell a particular used instance of the Marmot sleeping bag model 1234. Um, it should be noted that usually in commodity e-business, the items actually offered for sale are not exposed on the web. So mostly we don't have identifiers for the actual products you sell, but they are only uh, quantified existentially. It is said that there exists some instances of a certain sleeping bag uh, make and model, and that such will be offered for sale, are being offered for sale by the company. And then as a fourth uh, thing, often um, small shops offer some kinds of services related to that product range. So for example, this company may say that they clean and repair sleeping bags uh, made by any manufacturer, manufacturer. So these are typical uh, use case scenarios for the um, macroeconomic um, dimension, you should know that the uh, activities uh, relating to information processing for searching suppliers, uh, selecting suppliers, negotiating with candidate suppliers, and managing all the exchange of goods, they account for a large share of the gross national um, product of most highly developed um, companies. There have been studies dating back to the 1970s um, that uh, basically say that about 50% of our gross national product um, relates to such um, coordination tasks related to the exchange of goods. And part of this high share is that based on a high degree of division of labor, um, we, uh, we, have, we are exchanging very, very specialized goods and services so the overhead for describing what we are looking for and, or what we are offering and the overhead for uh, finding candidate suppliers is much more substantial as compared to a uh, national economy where you don't have a lot of division of labor. Now please advance to slide number five. Uh, six. Sorry. Um, now if you want to make that vision a reality, you basically need at least two ontologies. First, you need an ontology for product types and features. So a vocabulary for describing that a certain object is a sleeping bag or is a TV set, or that it has a certain screen size or a certain weight, or things like that. 
Um, I've been working for quite some years to derive such vocabularies from existing product classification schemas. Um, that was also a bit more complicated than initially assumed because uh, product categorization schemas are not designed with the rigor of knowledge representation in mind that you need when it comes to building an ontology. In fact, hierarchical classification schemes um, are often used with uh, different uh, semantics assigned to all the nodes in different contexts. So, for example, you can use the same hierarchy for classifying expenses and for classifying products. When you're classifying expenses, then ice cubes or um, uh, non-dairy creamer may be considered as expenses for beverages. But when you're looking for actual products or services, then ice cubes and non-dairy creamer um, is, are obviously not instances of beverages. Um, so there's a, quite a lot of um, work in that direction. Um, but based on that research, we have managed to derive and are continuously derive an updated version um, from the um, product classification standard E-class, which provides more than 30,000 classes of typical um, uh, goods purchased by industrial enterprises and more than 5,500 uh, properties for product features ranging from screen size to weight, width, um, diameter, and the like. Now, that issue is almost uh, done, not for all areas, but, um, but for a vast amount of uh, the types of products that are being exchanged. A second ontology you need is an ontology for offer specification, for exchanging information uh, about the fact that a certain business entity is uh, offering a certain type of goods or services um, to a certain audience and uh, constrained by certain uh, terms and conditions. Initially, it had been thought that once you have those ontologies for products and services, uh, the job was done, but um, quite clearly that's not the case because what you need to express is more than just saying that an object O is an instance of TV set. You must, moreover, be able to express um, the complicated details of an offering, whom you are willing to sell to, which regions you are delivering to, whether they are shipping, char shipping charges, pricing specifications, and the like. First thing to note in here is that an offer is basically a relation um, between an agent a set of objects, a set of property rights, an audience, and a set of terms and conditions. And by the way, this is the name why the ontology presented here tonight is called Good Relations because it expresses, or is a vocabulary for expressing the relations between goods and other entities, other resources. Um, why is an offer a relation? Well, because um, it is the um, often non-binding promise to transfer uh, a set of property rights to the first individual who is willing to accept that offer. Um, so it's, for example, important to note that the price of a product is not the price of a product, but it's the price um, uh, specify of an offering in, uh, that is part of an offering. So, for example, I can offer the same goods for sale at price A and for purchase at price B. Um, now please advance to slide number seven. Um, I said good relations have been um, published back in 2005 and have uh, uh, gained quite some uh, visibility in the community so far. 
Um, E-class O provides a large vocabulary that allows you to state that a certain object is an instance of a certain uh, category of um, product or service and allows you to state a certain uh, features or properties of this um, object. So you can, for example, say that foo my TV set is a TV set, and you could also say that it has a screen size of uh, 20 inches and the like. What do you um, need in, in parallel to that is an ontology for expressing that, for example, the, um, that Miller Inc. is a business entity and Miller Inc. is willing to sell this TV set, for example, to anybody um, who's willing to pay a respective price. So eClass O provides the classes and properties for describing what a product or service instance is, and Good Relations provides the vocabulary for expressing the promise made by a business entity to grant you a certain set of property rights on a given um, product or service instance. I'll please advance to slide number eight. Um, when designing good relations, um, I followed a pretty um, traditional ontology engineering process, first defining the scope of the ontology by motivating scenarios and competency questions. Uh, the full competency questions um, are in the technical report uh, that uh, is available on the um, project webpage. And here I give you just the most important competency question, which is basically which retrievable web resource describes, uh, resources describe an offer either to sell, to provide the service of, to repair, to maintain, to lease out, or to dispose a concrete individual or some unknown individuals of a given good, a given service, a spare part for a given good, consumables and supplies for a given good, either described by a type of good or a specific make and model. And then you have certain additional um, constraints, for example, requirements on properties or intervals for properties, uh, methods of payment, methods of delivery, and whether the offering is valid to consumers uh, or retailers only, and whether it's available in a certain country or region. Um, already with this competency question, you can cover a large deal of um, uh, searching for suppliers of products and services on the web. In fact, the competency questions were developed um, together with um, several companies in an Austrian research project called Myontology. One of the, company, the companies is developing recommender systems for various types of electronic products uh, and also for um, uh, tourism offers in Austria. Um, what you can see in here, by the way, because this is not just a presentation on the good relations ontology, but also discussing um, the way uh, that yielded uh, this ontology, is uh, the proposal of how to write down competency questions. So the... Um, Competency questions should, in my opinion, be exhaustive um, for defining the scope, the intended scope of the ontology. And this is why I use these curly brackets and the various options that you want in here, so that in a very concise manner you can write down what types of queries you want to be able to answer with the competency questions. This is not fancy. It's based on uh, uh, foundations uh, contributed by the very early um, advocates of ontology technology um, back in the early 1990s. Or um, but it's, yeah, I think it's a very readable approach. 
Good relations also include a small upper ontology part that uh, must be reused by all products and services ontologies. Um, otherwise, it's very difficult to have a um, common ground for, for example, spotting that something is actually a product or service. So, in the end, E-Class O and other products and services ontologies also import good relations. So, please advance to slide number nine. Um, this is just an overview of requirements um, and features, and you see already from the number of bullets in the list that despite uh, the fact that um, it, 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 at first uh, it looks very simple to just describe the price and, and details of an offering, you get a uh, pretty long list of requirements for real business um, scenarios. So, first of all, one requirement that is not... Uh, easy to fulfill is that you need support for ranges and units of measurements. You must be able to say that we are repairing TV sets that have a screen size between 10 and 40 inches, or we are transporting pianos that weigh less than 150 kilograms, and stuff like that. Or also in a search, you want to be able to express that you're looking for a cell phone that lasts for between 10 and uh, 30 days, and you want to find a cell phone that actually um, operates for 18 days. You must be able to uh, express the type of business function that is part of the offering. For example, whether the offering is an offering to sell, to lease, to dispose, to repair, or other um, types of um, activities. So you must be able to distinguish that. It should be compatible with existing all variants of um, products and services ontologies because uh, you don't want to start from scratch and reinvent the wheel all over again uh, because those ontologies are so large. Um, you want to support all ISO uh, 4217 currencies so that you're able to express the currency of price specifications and can use simple um, conversion services to consolidate offerings so that you can actually compare an offering in dollar, US dollars uh, with uh, an offering in Europe. Um, you want to be able to define eligible regions. You find such already in very simple uh, selling scenarios. For example, on the uh, Amazon web pages, you can mostly see uh, whether uh, which countries they are willing to ship to. Um, then something that's a bit more tricky is you want to support both selling explicit instances uh, descriptions of product models and anonymous instances. So, for example, if you have an eBay web page that sells a particular um, instance of TV set, and you have another web page that says just we um, we are selling some unknown uh, instances of TV set, and you have a third page on which uh, Sony is uh, describing the offer of a certain TV set make and model then you want to be able to query, uh, to, to uh, uh, issue a query that will return both um, uh, actual instances offered on eBay, anonymous instances offered by a web shop, and suitable models um, described on a manufacturer's web page. You want to be able to support common delivery and shipping methods, um, at least those used in the commodity um, uh, field. You want to be able to specify and filter by accepted payment methods. 
want to be able to say whether a certain offering is valid for uh, certain types of business entities only, for example, retailers, um, or whether it's available to consumers. Um, you want to be able to specify um, the type and duration of the warranty promise. So, for uh, how much, uh, how long the warranty will last, and uh, what its scope will be. Will it just refer to parts? Uh, and materials, or including labor, or including pickup, and stuff like that. You want to be able to specify different prices for different types of customers, for example, retailers and end users, or for different quantities. So, uh, one euro for one, up to ten items, and uh, 70 cents for uh, quantities beyond ten. You want to be able to specify charges for certain payment or delivery options, and that also individually per region or country. Because when you compare offerings, then what you're interested in is the total price, including shipping charges, and um, such must be uh, uh, supported by the ontology. You want to be able to express uh, product bundles for all kinds of units of measurement. So, for example, you should be able to say that two kilograms of butter plus two cell phones are sold by for 99 euros. Note that you have to, um, you cannot break that down to individual offerings because in most cases you don't have a price for the individual components. Um, it should be as compatible with international standards as possible regarding languages, regions, um, and the like. Um, also, a requirement um, that evolved during the development was that you should only um, uh, expect minimal regional support. So the goal was to develop an ontology that works well with any RDF, uh, RDFS style reasoner, so a subset of um, ODLP, uh, as well with a DL or to host reasoner. Um, because if you have a fully fledged DL ontology and require DL reasoning, then you may run into problems. Um, because most products and services knowledge bases are extremely large. Um, I mean, E-Class O um, has an RDF XML file that is uh, 30 to 60 megabytes in size alone, and um, most DL reasoners uh, are already facing um, some kind of trouble loading the pure ontology without a single instance included. Also, requirement from the practitioners involved was that it should support price ranges, list prices, time zones, UNFP, uh, European article numbers, uh, and look, international location numbers, and down in Bradstreet numbers for companies, and the like. Now, the price ranges and list prices are interesting because for long, uh, with some background in ontology engineering, I had refused price ranges and list prices because uh, they are ontologically very, very blurry. I mean, if someone says we sell a hotel room for between 100 and 400 euros, uh, that doesn't tell you anything, uh, or not, not, not something that is really useful for the matchmaking. But it was a um, request from practitioners, and we found a way to model that as well. Now, please advance to slide number 10. Oh, pardon? I just wanted to make a clear. There's, no, there's only about 10 minutes to go. Okay. Well, that should be fine. Okay. Uh, one thing that um, good relations faces and basically any ontology in a corporate setting faces is 
that you are constrained that, uh, by, by two bottlenecks. I mean, first of all, the ontology cannot be a lot more granular than the existing uh, data structures um, are. So if your ontology is a very good one, a very clean one from the conceptual modeling perspective, but it requires distinctions that are more subtle than the distinctions that the existing um, uh, databases make, then it's very hard for people maintaining existing databases to um, populate the ontology, to, to populate a knowledge base that refers to that ontology. So, for example, if your ontology requires that you split um, street addresses in street name and um, a number, and many popular systems just store this in one single string, then you put the burden on everybody using your ontology to cleanify, to, to lift and um, uh, augment the existing data, um, which may make it very difficult for um, users to adopt your ontology. For example, if we require that you classify all your products before being able to publish any data, then it's very hard to derive respective knowledge bases um, automatically from existing systems. And the second bottleneck is that, on the other hand, the ontology should be, should be subtle enough to allow rule-based transformation into um, most popular target structures, um, for example, in the form of popular software, or popular exchange standards, popular XML schemas, and, so, and the like. So that is an actual problem, and in many cases we had to fight hard um, to find a compromise um, with uh, practitioners using the ontology, because some details that we deemed um, absolutely necessary could just not be um, exported from the existing knowledge structures and were seen as, um, uh, uh, as hampering the adoption of the ontology. I think this is a general um, problem. Okay, now please advance to slide number 11. One core distinction that um, a good relations makes is that you have four core um, types of conceptual elements. You have business entities, you have offerings, you have products and services, and you have web resources. For those um, with a background in intelligence engineering, it's pretty clear that you, you have such distinct uh, types um, and you need to keep them distinct. For many practitioners, it's not immediately clear that they suddenly need to break down their wonderful one-page web, uh, uh, one web, web shop um, into four distinct entities. So if you have a small web shop that has just one URI for the web shop and for the offering and for the web page and for the product, then suddenly you need distinct identifiers. And it's sometimes um, hard to communicate um, to uh, practitioners that you need to keep them distinct because a business entity and the product and service being offered is quite clearly not the same. So please advance to slide 12. Okay, this is quite clearly not uh, uh, not actually readable. It just gives you an idea of the um, total domain capture. Um, you see the key entities here, the business entity, the offering, products and services, you see warranty scope. Um, we also support uh, specifications on uh, points of sales, so opening hours, and, and stuff like that. Okay, please advance to slide 13. Now, design considerations um, for the ontology or problematic issues. Um, are listed in here. First of all, the choice of a suitable ontology language was something that uh, 
we spend quite some thought on, handling ranges and intervals and data types, um, modeling classes, um, product models, product instances, and only existentially quantified product instances, handling NRE relations in O. Most of you will know that O and RDFS don't support, uh, only support binary relations, so handling uh, uh, relations of higher arity requires some workarounds and the licensing, licensing issue, of course. Oh, please advance to slide 13. Uh, 14, uh, no. uh, 14. As for the suitable ontology language, the compromise we eventually ended up uh, was using the um, ODL syntax for RDFS elements. Uh, so basically using a subset of the closure of all DLP, a small subset. Basically we just need class, object property, data type properties, subclass of, and sub property of, and RDF data type and RDF type, you know, and all ontology quite clearly. The idea was um, to find a fragment that works well with um, semantic web infrastructure as available today. So we don't wait for um, new infrastructure that may be available two years from now. We wanted to produce something that works with OLIM and uh, Sesame with rule-based reasoners so that you can really um, start making semantic web-based e-commerce a reality. On the other hand, combining the ontology with ontologies or knowledge bases that are actual OLDL should not lead to a model beyond the L, for example, make you end up in old full which would be the case if our ontology was modeled in pure RDFS. Also by this choice, we avoid layering problems between RDFS and OL um, that um, can be a problem when the ontology uses a more um, uh, powerful fragment. So actually, I think um, this uh, ontology language fragment is um, a pretty pragmatic choice for similar situations. You can do quite some nice reasoning if you want, but if you have an incomplete RDFS style reasoner only, then you uh, will have a very uh, scalable environment. Okay, then please proceed to slide number 15. Okay, you have about five now, How to handle ranges and interval intervals? I mean, there is some theoretical work on expanding um, all by constructs for ranges and intervals so that you're actually able that a TV set, uh, that a repair service for TV sets between uh, 10 and 10.5 uh, inches, uh, no, uh, kilograms of weight. Um, this, can, this range can be expressed uh, as a custom data type. Um, we did, for example, the old EU approach um, is one common uh, proposal. On the other hand, it's not supported by um, uh, common reasoners and it uh, will be quite a long uh, way until it may be supported by mainstream infrastructure. So we took a different approach, uh, workaround that may uh, be useful in other environments as well. We explicitly model a value as an instance of a class quantitative value. We define two properties, has min value, has max value, and has unit of measurement, which also allows for encoding uh, values using different uh, arbitrary units of measurement. And now, of course, in, uh, theoretically, most or all quantitative values are actually intervals, but in many practical scenarios, you want to specify that the min and max, uh, that the upper and lower bound are identical. So for that, and that is the workaround, we define an additional property has value, which is a sub-property of both has max value and has min value. So every reasoner that 
um, supports the closure of RDFS subproperty off will infer that a value that has value 10 has min value 10 and has max value 10. So you can very easily handle ranges without um, needing actual extensions of all and yeah, you pose a little bit of the handling of ranges to the, um, to the, to the one issuing the query, of course. Okay, please, slide 16. Oh, Martin, uh, can I interrupt for a yeah. second? I mean, you've reached the time limit. Um, do, you, do you think you could finish in five minutes? Um, yes, I think so. Just so can you move, okay. uh, move yeah. a little quicker? What we should um, touch is slide 16 is um, uh, good relations faces the problem that um, you, that the ontologies for products and services use the same classes for describing product models and product instances. So, for example, a TV, the class TV set in E-class may be used to describe a TV set make and model or an actual TV set. Uh, in particular, the many pro they, are, they, they have a large amount of properties, and you want to be able to, re to use the same properties for a TV set, make and model, and for an actual TV set, though they are semantical and not perfectly equivalent. So good relations uses a workaround in here in, in that it defines a top-level class product or service, that is um, the union of actual product or service instances, um, product service models, and product or service some instances placeholders. And by making an actual instance of TV set, toy TV set, what you see on the left, also an instance of either one of the three um, orange subclasses, you can specify whether you're dealing with an actual instance that will be gone once sold, with a make and model, or with a placeholder for anonymous, for existentially quantified um, instances. This allows using the same ontology for products and services for all three types without replicating the 5,500 properties. A problem is that you need non-standard reasoning for inferring um, feature defaults for product instances from the product model is specified. Now, that's probably a bit too complex to explain in the remaining time. Um, it's explained in the technical report available on the webpage. Okay, then please proceed to slide 17. Okay, product bundles are supported, but probably we don't need to go into too much detail in here. You just have a node that specifies um, what's included, how much is included, and in which, which unit of measurement the quantity is specified. So we can proceed to slide 18. And error relationships, as most of you know, are a problem in OLAND um, RDFS. There are many um, higher arity, um relations in the good relations ontology. Uh, we use the standard workaround for, for such uh, by defining um, a placeholder node and attaching um, n minus one of the attributes to this placeholder node. Um, what may be a nice workaround also for other projects is that we make all n array relationship classes a subclass of n array relation n array placeholder or similar um, class so that you know which classes are just placeholders for any area relationships, which keeps the ontology well readable. Okay, as for the license, it was also very important um, for us to give adapter certainty about permanent royalty-free access to the ontology, and after some consideration, we decided for the uh, Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license, which is pretty, pretty open. So please advance to slide 20. 
We wanted to reuse as much of the existing consensus as possible, for example, as far as countries, currencies, locations were concerned. There are basically two approaches for reuse. You can just make use existing numbering schemas as ranges for literal values, or you can replicate each value as an ontological instance. Um, these problems are described in one of the papers given um, in the end um, also. We decided uh, for the first option um, mainly um, because uh, we didn't want to replicate all existing standards because this creates some IPR problems. Um, government, please advance to slide number 21. This is a minimal example of the actual um, good relations ontology. You see here three colors. The, uh, in orange are all elements included in the good relations ontology. In green are all language elements that are provided by the product and services ontologies, for example, E-class O. And in blue are particular offering details, so the actual data. And you see on the left you have a business entity. Um, the link to the web resource is done using the simple RDFSC also property. So we don't define a class for um, web resource because that's already provided by RDFS. Um, we have an offering in the middle, offering one. It has attached the business function supported. It has attached the price uh, specification, which uses the, uh, specifies the currency value, the currency, and the unit of measurement. C62 on the top is the UNC fact code for peace, uh, just as an explanation. And then attached to the offering are one or multiple um, nodes, type and quantity node, um, and they are linked using the good relations includes object um, property. When you specify the amount of this goods on the uh, good on the left side, the type of the good links to the actual um, product or service, and the unit of measurement is the unit of measurement to which the amount of this good relates. And on the bottom, you see the description of the TV set as. Um, um, an instance of TV set and having a screen size of 30 centimeters. There's also a primer describing this um, example on the web page. Now, please advance to slide 22. Our <coughs> in, um, industry and academia um, for the ontology is pretty good. Uh, we have strong support from Smart Information Systems, a small startup company in Austria build, who builds um, recommender systems for products and services based on Semantic Web Technology. There's also an Austrian movement uh, called EB Semantics. They are building um, ontologies for um, tourism, accommodation, um, uh, electrical appliances, and the like, and they are all compatible to good relations now. Now, since about a week, um, Good Relations is officially included in the Yahoo Search Monkey technology, so it's one of the few recommended vocabularies, and it can be expected that in future, um, uh, in the future, if you produce um, Good Relations compliant metadata, um, then your search results will include more details in the Yahoo uh, listing. And there are um, uh, sponsor cartridges for Amazon, eBay, and others from OpenLink software, which also um, to be expected. We're also working with about 60 um, uh, manufacturers of open source uh, and commercial webshop software to um, provide exporters from existing webshops. And slide 23, please. Now, an ontology doesn't diffuse into a community just by putting it on the web. I mean, that was something I was always surprised um, of that the, uh, there was a certain degree of naivety in the academic um, ontology and engineering community, in particular in the early days, just 
You put your old file on the web, and then your job is done. Actually, based on diffusion strategy in business management, we um, try to pave the ground for the adaption of good relations by three measures. First of all, making creating good relations compliant data easy. We're working on a good relations annotator and validator that allows small businesses to create respective data, same as the four format allows it for both. We're working on exporters for popular web shops using the Triplify um, component. We're working on converters for catalog data interchange formats so that if you have uh, respective data, you can derive um, RDF XML from, from the respective XML files and publishing recipes and patterns for typical scenarios. Third, uh, second, we try to make creating good relations data attractive by working hard um, on uh, winning search engine renders and recommender system. Uh, providers so that it actually pays out to produce good relations data and we foster the development of compatible vocabularies, namely eCrowd-O, eBSemantics ontologies, my ontology and a couple of others that I cannot yet speak of publicly. So please advance to slide 24. Uh, one feature we included in uh, good relations which may also be an option for many other ontologies was a human readable documentation that is um, uh, made a reality not by content negotiation, that means the server returns um, an HTML file when request, such as requested by a browser and returns RDF XML if a semantic web application is fetching the file, but by always returning the, uh, the RDF, RDF XML file plus a pointer to a style sheet that is executed locally on the browser. And actually, this allows um, um, rendering on the client um, without the need to, um, for content negotiation. So when you uh, look up the ontology in your browser, you see what you see here on the slide, but it's an actual old file. So it's, uh, we, we don't send you an HTML file, but it's the actual old file, just includes a pointer to a transforming style sheet. Okay, then please slide 25. Some things for discussion. We currently have a very um, lightweight axiomatization we are thinking about adding this jointness axioms and the like, for example, in an external module. This would allow to use a reason for some compliance checks. Um, but, well, we, we don't have a, a made a, um, up our opinion on that. We thought about providing a microformance variant, but on the other hand, with the advent of RDSA, this may be um, um, a lesser issue now. So then please advance to slide 26. Additional information is on the following webpage, HTTP. Um, uh, uh, well, HTTP.org good relations. Uh, we have the ontology, language reference, the primer, recipes, and the full wiki there. So it was also very important for us that you have a full documentation before you actually announce the ontology. Then slide 27, please. Here's a list of papers um, uh, that explain the, the theoretical work underlying the ontology. Uh, all of those papers and uh, some others are available on the uh, URI given um, below HTTP headnet.de publications. Okay, then please proceed to 20, slide 28, which is actually the last one. Yeah, that is the link. Okay, that was it from my side. Thanks for yeah. your interest. I think it was now 45 minutes exactly. Okay, um, thank you. Thanks. Uh, so now we can move to general discussion. The, um, let's see, Rex Brooks, you have your hand uh, up. Hi. Uh, 
Excuse me just a second. I, I, my question was for the first uh, speaker, and he, he actually answered it. And uh, we can take that offline in an email. Okay. And now we have uh, Robbie. Do you have your hand up? Yes. Can Can you hear me? Yes, I can. We can hear you. Uh, my question is that there is absolutely no doubt in your superior um, uh, use of uh, ontologies, and I'm really grateful for your nice presentation. It certainly has bridged a lot of gaps, namely how ontologies mm -hmm. can be used between, you know, you go to eBay or... Uh, or Amazon or, or any other site, and they have different kinds of standards for advertising, defining, purchasing, and, the, and of course, their commercial process is fairly standardized. Here is your shopping cart. You pay by credit card. You check out. You choose shipping options, tax options, etc. So that's, that, that part at the back end is very, very standardized. But what you are bringing in is a lot of richness in terms of goods, products, and services, and also in using those aspects of OWL and RDFS and uh, ontologies in providing service type information. Now, with all that big commentary, my question is, yes, technology and techniques demonstrated are useful and will be very beneficial. But what's our game plan in terms of uh, roping in those kinds of engines that I just uh, described exist in terms of volume business that happens commercially? If we can, if we can zero in uh, on those um, and accelerate the, I'm sorry to use the word marketing, but not it's in a profit kind of sense, marketing of this technology and solution uh, in mm -hmm. terms of uh, acceptance by user communities such as book sales, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I think your uh, question includes at least two questions, at least that's what I got um, from it. Um, the first question is, okay, can uh, the, how rich can the actual description of um, – the products and services being sold uh, be. Um, and actually in here, I didn't include that in the presentation, but um, we are planning on supporting a wide range of, uh, a wide spectrum, um, ranging from um, shops that will specify the type of product being sold only by um, attaching a label, a string to it, to communities where you have fully-fledged DL ontologies describing a taxonomy of products and services types. And the reason why, um, why I think this spectrum of um, uh, wealth of description is necessary is if you uh, go back to my slide describing the um, import and export, the, the two bottlenecks uh, that was on slide um, 10 actually, you have many um, shops in the commodity sectors who don't have their offerings properly classified according to any taxonomy. They just have very, very um, uh, badly structured um, textual descriptions. Um, now, if I, if I uh, enforced um, 
uh, on those users, if I force those users to uh, classify all their items before they can publish their offerings, then they would not adapt um, uh, good relations, even though quite clearly it would be desirable to know more about what is being sold than the label being attached. But uh, let's be clear about that. The, there's already a high gain in um, processing data when you know the eligible countries that a certain integer number is actually the minimum quantity and that you know that, it is, uh, that um, for example, the shipping, shipping charge uh, is a certain amount of euro or is a certain amount of dollars and stuff like that. So good relations, the, the good relations part is meant as very lightweight and um, using such a language fragment that it can be used across various communities such that require heavyweight ontologies for describing the products and services and such being able to use only very lightweight ones. Um, so I, I always hesitate to stress that you can also use it without E-Class all or any other detailed products and services ontology, but at least then you can say um, what your offer uh, can um, encode all the commercial um, uh, aspects of your offering um, in a way uh, suitable for computers. Now the second question I um, got from, uh, or the second part of um, your question is, as far as I understood it, um, whether um, you, you have uh, the degree of standardization you should enforce. Uh, and, I mean, quite clearly there's a trade-off between the effort for standardizing a representation and the gain in reusability you have. The more dynamic, the, the more diverse a community is, the more difficult is it to, um, is it to, um, to, to reach consensus. So in fast-moving communities, you will not have um, a fully-fledged product and services ontology right from the beginning. Now, the third um, part of your question as for the marketing of it, yes, actually, I think that developing a good ontology is the first um, challenge, but making sure that the incentive patterns are in place so that it can actually be adapted by rationally um, acting um, humans is as important. It may not be uh, such. Uh, it may, there may be scenarios where the benefit for society is um, immediately clear. For example, in the first presentation, we have a scenario where we know the amount of um, documents we have. The benefit for society by improving access is also easily quantifiable, and you also have likely um, large stakeholders. Uh, where convincing them is a matter of talking to a finite amount of bodies. So, for example, if you um, convince a set of health insurance companies to support that work. Now, if it comes to very small business um, uh, opportunities, then you must win uh, the support by lots of um, independent economic agents or independent economic actors. And this requires that the incentive schema for the adoption is clear. And this is why I'm trying to make it both as easy as possible and as financially rewarding as possible to use the ontology. So now with um, Yahoo supporting good relations, there is uh, quite a high incentive even for small businesses to export um, RDF XML data according to good relations from their shop. Um, if there is no search engine harvesting the data, then it is hard to convince people to take the time to read the specification. So I hope this answered your questions. Oh, if yes. Not, please. oh yes. Quite a, okay. quite a bit, quite a bit, yes. 
only thing I was drawing one more parallel was the uh, e-exchanges as a parallel example to see how they, a small registration of community, a vertical community, such as a petroleum exchange or a metal exchange or semiconductor exchange, they do volume business in billions. Yep. So can we can we see that we have enough rules defined for e-commerce to have these ontologically rich concepts adopted by vertical communities where possible? Um, yeah, I, I did quite some work on the economics of ontology adoption, and uh, those are preliminary studies, but what you can see is that um, the, uh, the, for example, the full integration of multiple ontologies um, of a certain domain, the, the um, complete description of a domain is often not the economically efficient solution. So assume that, for example, you have two product and services ontologies, then an ontology engineer would assume that you must have a complete mapping between those. Um, my background is in economics, and I, I basically think that as far as um, uh, establishing interoperability between two representations, there will be an efficient, uh, or there will be an efficient subset. So I'm perfectly fine with use, with two communities, and I think this is what we are referring to, using partly incompatible um, standards for describing the types um, of services or of products or services. So, for example, um, by, uh, uh, th there's good reason why good relations leaves out the battle between E-Class and UNSPSC. Those are two huge taxonomies with about 25,000, 30,000 um, product categories. But the semantic relationship between uh, any of those two, um, any nodes in those two um, uh, systems is most likely just partly overlaps with. So um, creating a meaningful mapping between uh, 25,000 classes on one side and 30,000 classes on the other side is a major and um, open issue. And it's not necessary to solve that problem in order to use good relations for some benefit in automating product data um, exchange. Um, one more thing you said. I mean, of course, we have data interchange based on XML schemas in businesses, but only um, uh, this requires um, that you have a certain um, um, uh, number of business transactions with the same partner because otherwise setting up the, um, uh, the data exchange on the basis of that schema doesn't really pay out. So you cannot harvest the enormous amount of persistently published data on the web. And the idea of good relations is that you will be able to harvest, for example, product model data directly from Brother, from Sony Ericsson, from Volkswagen and BMW um, into your shop when you're offering a certain um, item. Wonderful, wonderful. One last technical question, and then I'll be quiet, uh, is that uh, how much value will uh, NRE relations, NRE rather than binary, relations you think will add to the accuracy of the solution? Um, basically, it, it is uh, more a question of beauty. Um, if you come from a conceptual modeling background, then any formalism that uh, forces you to, um, uh, to represent NRA relations uh, using workarounds, that, that will always bother you. But um, basically, the information loss uh, is uh, not relevant. I mean, it's just that um, 
it, it may cost you a little bit in terms of efficiency because the graph gets a bit more complex, but on the other hand, you only have binary relations, which means the processing will may likely be faster. So it's, to be frank, I think the lack of any relations in although it annoys me is more a question of beauty than of performance. We'll be surprised as semantics progress, as this uh, formalism progresses. I think we'll be surprised that appropriate multiple relations will improve the accuracies in searches and finding the right products and services. But le let's say I'll reserve my my comment on that, but I think NRA is going to multiply the accuracy multifold. Yeah. I mean, there have been, has been work, for example, on the Wismo family of languages, a nice syntax for a new, uh, and a new family of uh, web semantics languages has been developed in Innsbruck by Derry, now STI, and uh, partners. Um, and it, it really has a clear, readable syntax, and it supports uh, higher arity relations. But I still think that um, it's for, for most practical applications, the workarounds will do the trick. So, Yes, very helpful, very valuable <laughs> presentation. Thank you, sir. You're very welcome. Martin, uh, okay, I, I, this is Ken. Uh, I have a question about um, the uh, what, what exactly would you see as the relationship between your uh, your ontology and technologies like uh, SOA and web services uh, as they're you know as they exist today? I mean, exactly okay. what they is are the relationship? They are widely here? unrelated, actually. I mean, good relations is meant to provide a vocabulary for exposing offering data um, on the web. So offering data, um, the offerings made by web shops, uh, eBay pages, Amazon pages, and the like. Um, I mean, first of all, it's meant to support, uh, to, to, to describe offerings related to commodities and commodity services only. By um, good reasons, I did not dig into the um, uh, open field of uh, semantic web services description. Um, however, one should say that services for me are actual services like getting your hair cut or getting your car washed and not a web service that you can invoke to get a quotation for that service. Um, Good Relations now includes a feature um, that is basically actually a sub-property of uh, RDF SC also, which um, I don't remember the name um, right now, but it is a, uh, a property that allows you to specify the URI um, under which you can um, find an invocable service that provides additional information. So you could use it to um, describe uh, in a very, very lightweight fashion um, web services related to an offering. But, um, yeah, Basically, it's orthogonal. I mean, you can you can use um, uh, web services for invoking any functionality when it comes to the transaction phase, but good relations mainly supports the discovery and selection um, phase, searching for a supplier. Okay, thank you. Thank you. The uh, only part of transactions it supports is the importing of model data, um, for example, when you are a retailer and you know the um, URI of, a certain product model that you are selling. Does, does it not also help in uh, terms of the 
buyer or the explorer who wants to search and find something uh, with the use of uh, simple, I mean, or less complex services provided by uh, good relations ontology um i'm not sure i understand you correctly i mean you could use good relations also to express um that you are searching a certain type of goods that would just require a certain a new business function and we are considering that that you also have a business function of interested in or is regularly purchasing a certain type of goods so that you can for example say you know, we are buying used cars. Yes. And okay, we, we need to... So, but but that's, it is supported by the conceptual model, and it basically just requires adding a single ontological instance um, for the business function. Um, and we are considering that. Um, for reasons of simplicity, it has had, been, uh, had not been included in the first release, but um, we're doing some uh, small changes uh, as the ontology is already being used. Quite clearly, backward compatible changes. Okay, we're, we're running out of time here, and I, I just noticed that Peter Yim would like to say something. Yes, Peter. Yes, uh, I have a question actually for uh, both presenters. Uh, first of all, uh, before I even start, I would like to commend the both presentations. They they're just absolutely marvelous. Uh, I and I noticed both of you have sort of special effort into the adoption or the diffusion of the technology you uh, and process that you have developed. Uh, however, unlike what, at least what Ontolog believes, I mean, uh, in advancing the field of ontological engineering through uh, adoption into international standards, uh, neither of you actually have gone that, uh, gone that route. Uh, I was wondering whether you've considered it and sort of uh, believe that that's probably not the right approach, or whether you just you haven't just haven't had time to get around to that. Maybe. Um, Mr. Martin, I have an immediate answer to that. Um, uh, we have plans to um, submit good relations as a W3C um, standard submission. Um, but, well, this has not been a priority because, I mean, there are two ways of submitting standards, uh, standards to W3C at least. You can submit it, it's acknowledged, and it may, well, rotten somewhere in the archives, or you can submit something that already has quite some um, impact, and actually we wanted to work on the adoption before we um, try to get it standardized. So we first want to have software solutions actually supporting it before we start with the standardization route. But yes, I think having um, at least key ontologies um, being uh, backed, uh, backed by, um, by, by a standardization body um, makes a lot of sense. Well, and for the wood ontology, we um, we are we are really working first. I think that's necessary on uh, valuable consensus within the domain experts community, and then uh, we can um, go one step further and standardize or send it to some standardization uh, um, uh, instant, um, 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 community or people deciding whether this standardization could be accepted or not. 
Thank you. I'd like to thank both both of our speakers. This is really in a, a really very impressive session. Um, I think that you brought up a, a lot of very interesting issues, and that my hope is that we can then move this discussion uh, to the uh, uh, to our mailing list and uh, to other uh, forums for uh, for further uh, considerations and further discussions. So I want to thank. Yes, I would love speakers. to continue to discuss. Good, I mean, some discussions on good relations have already been uh, taking place on the mailing list, and yes, yes it's already continuing. Uh, uh, Sven, I hope that uh, we can get um, you involved in this as well. Absolutely, and, thank you. Yeah. So I'd like to uh, again, I say thank the speakers, and I believe it's now time that we. Uh, we close this session. Um, so, thank, thank. I would also like to thank all of our participants for uh, for uh, their questions and and for involvement in this session. Well, also from uh, as a speaker, thanks a lot for organizing it for the whole initiative. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's very valuable to have an, an industry-driven. Uh, a uh, group of uh, contributors to the field, um, and I think many of the th things that are now being corrected in the semantic web research communities towards uh, considering cost and benefit aspects of ontologies, such things have been uh, under debate in the Ontolog Forum uh, for quite a while, so I, I really think it, it's an important contribution. And again, thanks for the invitation and hosting this session. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks. Great Please session. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Else. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Thank now. you. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. Bye. Thanks.